handy, but I'm not going to read a text to start with. We're going to get to the text at the end. We're going to be moving in along in our confession, beginning in chapter 13 of our confession. I think we're still on page 677 in the hymnal. Studying our confession, we're going to begin this evening the chapter on sanctification. So let's open up with another word of prayer. Father, it is true that we need Thee every hour. Lord, it's more true than we even know. We're in greater need than we even comprehend. Lord, we thank You that it's Your grace that comes to us and reveals to us just a glimpse of how needy we are so that we might turn to You. And I pray that You'd help us in our study this evening to realize more and more just how dependent we are upon Your work and Your sustaining hand within us. I pray that You'd bless this congregation as we learn and study and grow together, come to understand more clearly the things that we confess as a church. I pray that you'd help us to see the truths of our confession as simply and clearly categorizing the texts and the words of Scripture. We stand upon your word and your word alone, but we thank you for your providence in history to use men to bring us to sit upon their shoulders and to learn from them. We thank you for your preserving hand upon your church. So help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Every chapter, it seems like, for a while, at least back to chapter 10, the first paragraph and really the first words of the first paragraph of every chapter, we always are answering the question, who is our subject? Who are we talking about? Or who is in view in this chapter? And each section, as we've noted, has simply been referring to the group that we, would, we might would call the elect. It's the same group, and what we're doing is tracing that group as they move along the path of redemptive history starting in the eternal decree of God and moving in through the effectual call and justification and adoption and now sanctification. And every time I say this, notice, notice the language. I've done this. We could all go all the way back to chapter 10. And we have this language, those whom. And I say, who are we talking about? It's, there's a those here. Chapter 11, those whom. Chapter 12, all those that. It's all the same group. We're just bringing this group along, redemptive history. So we're asking that question again. Who are we talking about? Who is in view? And as we open up these paragraphs and opening up the opening statements of each paragraph, what we're essentially seeing is an answer to the question, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who's been... Effectually called. A Christian is one who's been justified. A Christian is the one who's been adopted. If we go back before that, a Christian is one who's been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that has been made 
effectual in time. This chapter, chapter 13 on sanctification, is no different. But this chapter, I think, as I thought about this and prepared, is especially important from the outset. It's especially important for us to identify who are we talking about. When it comes to sanctification, who's in view here? I want to begin with the definition and move into why I believe it's important that we are all clear about the subjects in this chapter. The word sanctify means to make holy. The word holy means to, to it means separate, literally to cut off from that which is common, to separate from that which is common. So to sanctify, to make holy, means to cut off from the mass that is common unto a special or uncommon use. In the concept of sanctification, there's always a severing from and a severing or a bringing unto. And this goes all the way back into the Old Testament when God sanctifies or God consecrates. It's not just take this thing away and send it off. It's I'm taking this for me. It's now for my special use. If I've got a ham and I slice off a piece and I take that piece and put it on my plate, I have sanctified that piece. I've cut it off from the common mass and I'm taking it to my place to use for me. That's the picture that's given to us in the word sanctify, that being based on the concept of making something holy or setting something apart. And so sanctification, the noun, is just the act whereby something is separated from the common for special use. Now there are several erroneous views of the doctrine of sanctification that I want to sort of hit from the outset, and, and I think you'll recognize some of these. Some people, when you begin to talk about sanctification, or as soon as you mention the word sanctification, they immediately imagine in their mind something that is optional. And there are different ends of just that spectrum. There, there is the group who, when they think of sanctification, in their mind they're thinking of something that is reserved for a special group of what they might call super saints. People who reach the second tier or receive the second blessing or historically people who achieve to the higher life or the deeper life. On the other end of that spectrum, there are those who when they hear sanctification, they think that this is something that's optional as in it's not expected for people that we might refer to as carnal Christians. They're carnal, so don't, don't really expect anything out of them, but they're still Christians. And in that regard, sanctification is optional for those people. Uh, interestingly enough, both of those ideas, the, the doctrine of the carnal Christian and the doctrine of the super saints or the, the moving from no lordship to lordship salvation, all of that finds its roots in the same place historically. There's also this error with regard to the doctrine of sanctification that takes into account the idea that it is a synergistic work. When we, as we move into sanctification, different from effectual calling and justification and adoption, we're now talking about something in which we actually cooperate with God. It is a synergistic work. 
synergistic, meaning two working together. But some people hear that notion, that little bit of language, and they confuse synergism, me cooperating with God, and they take it to this extreme where it's all me and no God. And so they sever it so far from justification that they would say justification is clearly by faith alone, and sanctification is way over here in it's all me. And I'm just working as hard as I can to produce something, but it's in my own strength. Or perhaps they might misunderstand the concept of synergism altogether. And when they think of sanctification, they think of sanctification as all God. These people are very often in the very first erroneous group that reached to the higher life or the deeper life where they would say sanctification is just like justification. It's sanctification by faith alone. What is required of me is simply to believe real hard and meditate real deeply and God will just come in and just move me along spiritually and make me more holy in that way. Now all of those errors, I think, stem from what is a majority view. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but if I asked this room, what is sanctification? I would imagine that a majority of our answers would begin like this. It's the process where? Or it's the process by which? The process by which we are made more and more into the image of Christ. or The process where we become more and more holy. And so most people when they think of sanctification think of merely the process by which we become more holy. And so the super saints, they're going to move a lot faster and a lot further along that process. The carnal Christians, they never really get involved with that process and so they never become any more holy. I can personally become more holy simply by gritting my teeth, acting in ways contrary to my desires, and moving, you know, begrudgingly down this process until eventually I don't have to grit my teeth so hard, it just sort of becomes normal. Or I can become holy and move along this process again by simply sitting quietly, meditating, and waiting for God to just slide me down the process. In other words, all these errors stem from people thinking and confusing the doctrine of sanctification as only a process. Well, God's Word tells a different story with regard to sanctification, and following God's Word, our confession tells a different story with regard to sanctification because both God's Word and our confession present sanctification in light of the answer to the question, what is a Christian? Who are we talking about here? Who's the subjects? This is chapter 13, not chapter 1. There's a, there's a lot that has led up to this. And chapter 13, paragraph 1, begins with that same, answering that same question, who are we talking about? Or essentially, what is a Christian? We have to get that clear. What is a Christian? Then we can begin to understand sanctification. Now notice, before we... Start at the beginning of it. Just move your eyes down the paragraph a little ways and notice this phrase. Also farther sanctified. Also means in addition to. Farther means to a greater distance than I am presently. 
So when, if we just read that, we would have to think or ask, farther than what? In addition to what? Is there a sense in which I can be sanctified? And then in addition to that and beyond that, I can be sanctified in a different sense? And the answer is yes. Why is that? It's because the scriptures and the confession do not view sanctification as merely a process that begins at neutral ground or that starts at zero where a person just sort of decides or finds their way along this process. Again, chapter 13 is dealing with the same group that we talked about in chapter 10 and chapter 11 and chapter 12 and opens by answering the question, what is a Christian? Who are we talking about here? Now, let me read to you the first little bit of this paragraph. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, we could put a period at the end of that and we could say, that is a Christian. If you're wondering, am I a Christian? This is what a Christian is. This is essentially all that is bound up in what it means to be a Christian. And that statement alone needs to be opened up if we're going to understand sanctification. Now notice there are three general characteristics of a Christian named here. They're united to Christ. They're effectually called. And they are regenerated. And without understanding union with Christ, effectual calling, and regeneration, sanctification makes no sense at all. If you don't understand union with Christ and effectual calling and regeneration, then you will think that there are super saints who are going to get to the second level. There are carnal Christians who never move beyond anything. The only way that I can become more holy is if I just grit my teeth and bear it or perhaps sit and meditate and wait for God to do something to me. But when you understand union with Christ, effectual calling, and regeneration, all of that stuff crumbles. So that's what I want to do is just unpack these, all of which we've covered, some of them in very recent days. But I just want to unpack these again, and I'm essentially answering the question, what is a Christian? First, a Christian is one who is in union with Christ. They who are united to Christ. Now I did a series on this. I won't recap the whole series, but union with Christ is the joining together in an indissoluble oneness, that's the language of pink, the elect of God and the Lord Jesus Christ were joined together. This union is an objective union. That means it starts, in a sense, outside of us and in eternity. It begins with Christ as our mediator in eternity, agreeing to the covenant of redemption, agreeing to be our federal head, our representative. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, all of those who are in Christ will be made alive. Now, from that text, we see simply that there are two federal heads, two covenant representatives, Adam 
and Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, that began not with you deciding to be in Christ first and foremost, but logically and even uh, chronologically in eternity when Christ agreed and said, I will represent that person. I will be their federal head, their surety in the covenant of redemption. So it's first and foremost an objective union. Secondly, it's a spiritual union. That is the adhesive of this union is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of Christ Himself. John 14, verses 16 to 17. Jesus speaking says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit. Elsewhere in that chapter, Jesus speaking says, I and the Father will make our dwelling in that person. How? By the Holy Spirit. And so just like a man whose feet are on the earth and whose head is in the stars... Because his body is filled with the same spirit, it's one body. And that's the way it is with Christ and the believer as we've been talking about unity. Because we're both animated by the same Holy Spirit. Christ's spirit dwells within the believer. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says that he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. It's a spiritual union. We're united to Christ by his spirit. Thirdly, it's a real union. That means, and I, this is the way I described it then, it's practically operative, presently observable, progressively quantifiable, and personally provable. In other words, this union is not just confessional orthodoxy. It's not just experience, or it, it is experiential orthopraxy. In other words, you can observe in your life and in the life of another person whether or not they are united to Christ. It's not just an idea out there where we say, well, I think I'll be united to Christ. You can see it. You can see the effects of Christ in your life and others' life. You can observe it. It's quantifiable. You can prove it. We can go to the Scriptures and they will tell you a person united to Christ does this, produces this, acts like this. And if it doesn't line up, it's not a Christian. They're not in union with Christ. It's real. This is not just an idea. It's real. Fourthly, this union is a mystical union. And I use that term in the sense of a biblical mystery, that this union existed in some sense in eternity, was hidden in ages past in God, has been revealed now only through special revelation and the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, you're not going to look at a sunset or the leaves falling off the trees and see that God has united the elect with His Son in a union, an indissoluble oneness. This is only revealed through special revelation by the Spirit of God. It's mystical. And then, fifthly, I said that this is, and this is true, a vital union. Vital there, you can think of vital signs, life signs. This union is a life-giving, life-sustaining union with Christ. John 15, 4 and 5. 
abide in me, in me, and I in you. That's the language of union. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. It's a vital union. When we come into union with Christ, it gives us life and it sustains us life like a branch connected to a vine. So union with Christ is the joining of believers with Christ by the Holy Spirit in such a way, and this is, I went back and looked at some of my notes on this series and the quotes that I had from men who were, Lloyd-Jones, who would say that, that this is the essence of Christianity. This is what it is. It's being joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit in such a way that His actions have a specific bearing on our lives and that our lives are carried out in and through His life-giving power. So from eternity moving into the incarnation and His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension, in all of that, Christ was acting for us, acting in our place. His actions in time are transferable to our, our account. All that He's done... And all that he is doing is as surety for a particular people. He acted as though he were us, so that we might now be reckoned as if we were him. That's what union is. And a Christian is one in union with Christ. That's who we're talking about here. That's the subject, a person in that union. The confession continues, they who are united to Christ, comma, effectually called. Now this takes us back to chapter 10. A Christian is one whom the Father has effectually called, and now I'll quote from that chapter, by His Word and Spirit. So the, the Word, that would be the preached gospel coming, the Spirit uses the means of a preached gospel coming from outside of a man into his ears and his brain. The Spirit uses that. And remember the, the analogy I used was that of a football player, a quarterback who throws the ball, and he's also the, the catcher. Is that a running back? So he throws it, and then he goes around the other end and receives it from the other side. That's the picture. The Holy Spirit brings, he comes with the preaching of the gospel, and then he receives it from the other end within the believer, acting inside a person, effecting a positive response to that word. So a person dead in sins is sitting there and they're hearing it and their mind begins to comprehend and understand some things. The words that are coming out of the preacher's mouth, all of a sudden, they're not like the words they heard before the last time they heard this gospel. All of a sudden, these words begin to bear a little bit more weight and a little bit more and a little bit more and the Spirit is working from the inside and the Spirit is working from the outside so that that man all of a sudden hears, really, spiritually, for the first time, the gospel and a positive response is effected by the word and the spirit bringing about a change in the nature of that man. Chapter 10 says that we're called out of that state of sin and death in which we are by nature to grace and salvation in Jesus 
Christ. A change of nature happens. As the Word is coming this way, the Spirit is working over here, changing a person's nature, using the very words preached. Now, what is a change of nature called? Or I should say, what is a change of heart called? Regeneration. Back to paragraph 1 of chapter 13. United to Christ, effectually called and regenerated. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who has been united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated. Which involves, back to chapter 10, this is what the Spirit does. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh. Renewing their wills and by His almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Christ. Change of heart, change of mind, change of will, change of direction. What is that? That's a change of nature. That's regeneration. Back to chapter 13, paragraph 1. Regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them. That's regeneration. The language there taken from Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Now we use that text a lot. Let's slow down here. Remember the question is, what is a Christian? God promises for the believer in the new covenant, I will give you a new heart. What is a new heart? Remember that the heart is the, what we might call the seat, the place. In classic literature they would say the locus. The, the place of all non-physical personhood. The thoughts, the emotions, the affections, the character. It all flows from the heart. Guard your heart with all diligence for from it flow all the springs of life. All the issues of life come from the heart. All that you are, all that you produce that is not physical, all that is you coming out of you being you comes from the heart. Now, prior to regeneration, all of that non-physical personhood is rocky and hardened toward God. The thoughts, the emotions, the affections, the character, they're all dead. Does that mean they're inactive? No, it means they're alienated from God, cut off from God. When a person is regenerated, they get a new heart, a fleshy heart heart, a living heart. And so at that point, all non-physical personhood is now soft and sensitive toward God. The thoughts, the emotions, the affections, the character are given life, joined to the life of God Himself. They're given a new heart. Now where does that life come from? Well, the Christian also has, back to the confession, a new spirit created in them. Again, this is a part of regeneration, the creation of a new spirit. James says that a body apart from the spirit is dead. That means the spirit is the life source, the, the animating principle. A new heart lives because a new principle of life has been given, or literally has been created. A new creature has been created. Prior to regeneration, I have a spirit. I have a living, animating principle within me, but it's fallen. 
And so while it does live, it lives to sin. It functions in the realm of sin. That's all it can do is sin. But at regeneration, a new spirit is given. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within them. It's the Holy Spirit of God. The spirit that now gives life to the believer is the Holy Spirit. It's the life of God. That new spirit now lives not to sin. It lives to God. The life that I now live, I live to God. Now notice the language of the confession. This new spirit is created in them. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Not will pass away, not is passing away, has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in that text we have union, if anyone is in Christ. And then we have this new thing, this new creation. If anyone is in Christ, literally, new creation. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them. That's a Christian. That's who we're talking about. When we get to sanctification, we're talking about those folks. We're not talking about somebody who made a decision. We're not talking about somebody who walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, felt bad about their sin, had a traumatic experience, had a dream or a vision. None of that counts. We're talking about a person who's in union with Christ, has been effectually called, has been regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them. That's a Christian. Now, all of those things, effectual, union with Christ, effectual calling, regeneration, new heart, new spirit, all of those things happen at a moment in time. They're not a process. They happen. When you are effectually called... Within that effectual calling is the regenerating work of the Spirit. And a part of that regenerating work of the Spirit is the new creation work. A new heart and a new spirit. It's not a process. It happens. None of the language in Scripture would ever lead us to believe that the new birth is a process. It's all a moment in time action. If you have been united to Christ, effectually called Regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in you, let me ask, are you the same as you used to be? Not at all. It's not just outward actions. Your whole nature changed in an instant. There has been a definitive break from the old way. Now you're walking in a new way. The old has passed the new has come. That's a Christian. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit have gotten together, have done a work in you that at once, in a moment, separates you from the mass of common humanity in Adam and consecrates you apart unto the Lord forever. In a moment, you have been sanctified. Once. One time. And this is where the Bible starts with sanctification, and this is where confession starts. A once-for-all, moment-in-time act of God whereby you are set apart forever for Him. Theologians would call it positional sanctification or definitive sanctification. If you have been definitively sanctified, that's one sense, but then following on the heels of that, 
you are also farther sanctified. In addition to that, and going beyond that, you're made more and more holy. And we'll see that as we move through this chapter. But that's not where we start. All of the confusion about sanctification hinges on this idea that it's merely a process. That there never came a moment in time when a person was changed in their nature where they're absolutely different from what they used to be. Now, let's go to the Scriptures. Because this once-for-all sanctification is actually the primary way that the Scriptures use this language. Which is funny. When most people think of the process, the Bible doesn't even talk of the process most of the time. Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. And you can turn to these or you can just listen to them. It's, I'm just focusing in on a single word in most of them. Acts 20, 32, Paul says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's one. Are sanctified. Later on in Acts 26, God speaking to Paul tells him, he's, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. This is Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Notice these are, this is dark, dark and light. There's not a confusion about whether it's dark or light outside. They're going to turn from darkness to light. They're going to turn from the power of Satan to God. Like that. No, no, nothing blurry here, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And every one of those uses, and that's just a selection, the word sanctified, and every one of them is in the aorist tense, passive voice. It happened at a moment in time, and it happened to you. Something happened to you by someone else acting upon you. You were sanctified, are sanctified, done, completed, finished. It's happened. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now notice, he does not say, God chose you to be saved unto sanctification, as in, you got saved so that you could be placed on the conveyor belt of the process of being made into the image of Christ. No, you were saved through or by means of an action, the sanctification by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God came and set you apart for God. That's what happened when you got saved. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, if we wanted to take out that little section that names where all of these people are from and sort of piece together a complete sentence, the elect exiles, that's an adjective, and then it picks up at according to the foreknowledge of God. So it, it could read like this. To those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God or elect according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ. Now, obedience is usually what we think of in connection with the process of sanctification, walking in the works that God has created for us beforehand to do, but it doesn't say that we're created or, or uh, these folks are elect according to the foreknowledge of God for sanctification. It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit set these exiles apart for God, and out of that having been set apart is going to flow obedience to Jesus Christ. Again, the idea is that when they were converted, at a moment in time, they received this sanctification, the act of being made or separate, being separated from that which is common to that which is holy. Two more texts. Hebrews 10.10. 10. Hebrews is very important because Hebrews deals with all of these things in the realm of the Old Covenant system. All of the language is, is that of the Old Covenant way of thinking and how it all pointed to Christ. Not a modern systematic theology where we'd say sanctification, the process by which we were made. It doesn't deal with that because that's not where this idea is rooted. Hebrews 10.10, 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There, this is in the perfect tense. That means this is a past event with, it, with results that continue into the future. But the event is past. Have been sanctified and it's passive. It was done to us by God. God sanctified you in the past. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Again, that's in the aorist tense. A past completed action accomplished by Jesus' death. All of these texts, and there are more, are simply to support the notion of a definitive sanctification. A once for all, moment in time action, completed, never to be repeated. An act of God the Holy Spirit, setting a person apart from that which is common, unto special use by God through effectual calling, regeneration, and uniting them to Christ. This is true of every Christian. And so... There are no super saints who reach a second level that others will never achieve. There are no carnal Christians who never grow in holiness. Now, there are some, some quote, Corinthians who are as carnal, who, who are living from time to time like they're in the flesh. But there are no, in the classic sense of this phrase, carnal Christians, people who are really converted but they never show any fruits of salvation. You do not grow in holiness by simply gritting your teeth and bearing what you don't actually desire to do. You don't grow in holiness by sitting and waiting for God to do something in you through faith. Just meditating and waiting and hoping that it happens. 
Every Christian has been called from death to life. Every Christian has been regenerated. Every Christian has a new heart, a new spirit, new will, new affections. Every Christian has been brought from death to life. That's what a Christian is. Every Christian has been definitively sanctified once for all in a moment of time. If you're a Christian, you are different now than you were before. You think differently now than you thought before. The very principle of spiritual life in you has been created anew. The source from which all of the issues of life flow from you has been replaced Sanctification is not an option for some. It's a requisite for all saints. To be sanctified simply means to be a Christian. And it's from that truth that we can then move forward to consider the process. But again, sanctification is not gritting, gritting your teeth and bearing what you don't want to do. You've been changed. You want to do it. Now I want to give you some homework and I'll be finished. I want to read those last two texts again. Hebrews 10.10 And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, the, the word sanctified there, again, is that once for all action. But then the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, that's also a once for all action. A, a, a historical act. It's never to be repeated. It happened at a moment in time. Amen. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own Blood. Again, his suffering is a historical act, never to be repeated, and he done it in order to sanctify a once for all act, the people. Now look back at the confession. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, through the virtue of of Christ's death and resurrection are also farther sanctified really and personally through the same virtue. The virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Hebrews 13, 12, he suffered outside the gate. Hebrews 10, 10, he offered his body once for all, his death. And also his resurrection. So here's your homework. Go home and read Romans 6. And answer this question. What do the death and resurrection of Christ have to do with my being definitively sanctified and progressively sanctified? And hopefully we'll begin to look at that next week. I'll give you just a little hint. Everything. Everything. Let's pray and we'll stand and we'll sing a hymn together. Father, we're amazed at this work that you've done within us. Lord, sometimes we struggle to see 
what we want to see. But we see little changes, little, little advances, little movements here and there. We're reminded that if something is alive, it's growing. And that's because of you. It's because of our having been grafted into Christ, united to Him. Father, help us to see that Christ is everything. That the death and the resurrection of Christ are everything. That it's from His work, from His fullness, that we all receive grace upon grace to grow. Help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, who rules and reigns from on high, who conquers as our King and brings us along this process, having already consecrated us to Himself. Lord, these truths are, are too much for us. I pray that you'd give us a little bit of an understanding. In Jesus' name we pray.